0: This is a really interesting time, first of all, in church history that doesn't really get talked about very often. You know, Brigham Young is the first president of the church to really grow old in office. You know, Joseph Smith obviously died and was martyred at a young age. So we begin to see, you know, what becomes like kind of the priorities of um, an aging church president.
1: Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shaylin Back. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be discussing chapter 29 of Saints, Volume 2, To Die in the Harness.
1: Today, we are grateful to have Justin Bray with us. Justin is a historian with the Church History Department. Welcome, Justin.
0: Thanks, Ben. Happy to be here.
1: Justin, maybe you could introduce yourself just a little bit for our audience. Tell us uh, what you do in church history, and uh, then we'll jump into chapter 29.
0: Sure. Well, I work in the library division of the church history department on a team called the executive services team, and we provide research and writing support for general officers of the church. We also have a oral history program where we conduct oral history interviews with general authorities and general church officers about their service and their assignments and their tri- travels, and it's a way to kind of keep an ongoing record of the church.
1: Very cool. So that goes along with, in the library, we have this giant sign up above the door that's quoting the Doctrine and Covenant says, a record shall be kept. You're one of those record keepers.
0: That's right. You're, we do our best. <laughs> you're,
1: you're out there recording the history of the church as it happens today.
0: We couldn't do it without the many volunteers that we have, not only at church headquarters in the church history department, but we have people all over the world Um, That we provide training for that also record these kinds of interviews with church members on the ground, pioneer members of the church in different countries. So it's a very uh, big operation and uh, we do our best to maintain it.
2: That's amazing. So are these interviews available now or will they be made available? Some are
0: available now to protect confidences and allow for people to express themselves freely Some of the interviews with general church officers are not made available during their lifetime. And then there's kind of an indefinite period after that until they do become available. But at some point, we imagine that they'll become available for researchers or for internal church use.
1: We also use some of your interviews with pioneering members around the world in the Global Histories Project. Is that right?
0: That's right. And I believe at some point with Volume 4... When we get into the more modern church history, a lot of those interviews might be used for different characters and different storylines for right. saints.
1: Absolutely. So we're excited to use those as we move forward in the history of the church. Thanks again for joining us, Justin. Today, as we talk about chapter 29, we just pause here for a second and remind our listeners this chapter, like many as we move through the book, has a number of storylines. We've got a lot of different subjects to talk about today. So we'll do our best to kind of draw a line that connects everything, but there's a lot going on here. Let's start off with Brigham Young. Tell us a little bit about what is happening with this so-called priesthood reorganization. This is toward the end of Brigham's life, and he feels a need to put things in order. What is he doing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really interesting time, first of all, in church history that doesn't really get talked about very often. You know, Brigham Young is the first president of the church to really grow old in office. You know, Joseph Smith obviously died and was martyred at a young age. So we begin to see, you know, what becomes like kind of the priorities of um, an aging church president. And one of them is this priesthood reorganization that you've talked about, so at this point in church history, this is kind of the beginning of the end of the early Utah period. There's a lot of other pioneer members of the church that are aging and dying off. And Brigham really felt the need, as you mentioned, and that there needed to be more order, a more systematic approach to creating and operating stakes of the church.
2: Because, Justin, tell us at this time, what is it like? What's the organization yeah, there's, like?
0: There's a variety, and kind of a mix of stakes that have stake presidents. Some stakes have a member of the Twelve that presides over that stake. It was very common at that time. It
1: seemed weird to me. Like, I'm reading the book,
0: and it mentioned there are wards without bishops. And I yeah. was like, how can you do You can't do that.
1: You can't have a ward without a bishop. You have to have a bishop. Right.
0: It's hard to imagine in the 21st century having a ward without a bishop, right? Yeah. And, and some wards had presidents and not bishops there's just kind of uh, just a variety of different titles and different things going on in the stakes and wards and one of my favorite examples that actually didn't make it into the book is this bishop named elijah sheets and he was the bishop of the salt lake 8th ward and he served as bishop for 50 years, from like 1853 oh to the early oh. 1900s. They, Can you imagine? <laughs> they called him the half-century bishop, um, <laughs> wow. which it was not totally uncommon to serve as a bishop for decades and, and die in office. But he moved to Provo you know, after he was called as a bishop of the Salt Lake Ward, but he wasn't released. He continued to be the bishop of the Salt Lake Ward and serve in a stake presidency in Provo. He later served a mission in the 1870s, was not released as bishop. And so you could kind of just see that things were a little bit different back then. Yeah,
1: yeah. No kind of the process and patterns and standardization kind of that we're used to just really hadn't happened yet. Absolutely. What about priesthood offices? So it's really hard for me and I think a lot of modern members of the church, when we say the word deacon or teacher or priest, like just instantly we're thinking of, Young men, young men, 12, 14, yeah. 16, right? But that's not what was going on here. Can you explain a little bit about what priesthood quorums look like and then what this reorganization, how that changed as part of that?
0: Yeah, so the Aaronic priesthood quorums, they did have the offices of deacon, teacher, priest, but they were mostly held by older men. And there was this feeling among ward and stake leaders that young men. There were no handbooks. There was not a young men's organization like that exists today. Some stakes and wards had something along those lines, but there just wasn't a training program for young men at that time. And there was also this reverence for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and whether a young man had the maturity and the experience to participate in that sacred ordinance. And so there were a lot of older men called to serve as deacons, teachers, priests, and some older men that already had the Melchizedek priesthood were called as acting deacons, teachers, and acting teachers, and acting priests. So obviously that was something that was on Brigham's mind at the time because that was a part of this reorganization was to start having young men gain some experience in the Aaronic priesthood. But I should say that it didn't all happen right at once. These things happen over time. It wasn't just a light switch that President Young said that young men should have the priesthood. Older men continued to hold offices in the Aaronic Priesthood until the turn of the century.
1: And what about MIA, or the Mutual Improvement Association? How did that play for young women as well as young men?
0: Yeah, so there had been different iterations of the MIA, the Mutual Improvement Association, going back to the 1840s. There was a young gentleman's and young ladies' organization during Joseph Smith's lifetime. But when the saints had to leave Nauvoo and come to Utah, those organizations were discontinued. There was a young ladies' retrenchment organization that was created in 1869. It was actually the young women's organization that had these divisions in their program by age. Church leaders decided to do that with the Aaronic Priesthood as well.
2: I think sometimes we take for granted now the organization that we enjoy in the church and how smoothly things seem to run in general. And just to give a little bit of insight into what President Brigham Young was going through, he said, in my anxiety to see the house of God set in order, I have somewhat overtaxed my strength (laughs) because as (laughs) we talked about, he's an older man. He's been the prophet for a long time now. And anyway, it's nearing the end of his life. Something that I liked from the book with the reorganization of church leadership was a story that came up of Jane Richards. So tell us, Justin, a little bit about her story. Who is she?
0: Yeah, Jane Richards, she's got a really fascinating story. She joined the church in Upper Canada with her family in 1840, and she married Franklin D. Richards, who was an apostle for the church, had six children, and she joined the Relief Society organization in Nauvoo. So she was one of those early members of the Relief Society in in Nauvoo, and then, you know, she moved with the saints she ultimately ended up in Ogden, Utah, and the book does a really good job of explaining that her health was not very good, and she was called on to be the Relief Society in, in Ogden. I love that part of the story <laughs> because how
1: many of us have received callings, and for whatever reason, in her case, it's a physical ailment, Yeah. but for whatever reason, we're like, I can't do this. I'm not you know, in a position to accept this kind of calling, and part of her story is this, mm-hmm. man, I'm just too sick to do this thing. Yeah.
2: And I think beyond that, too, she even was healed. So her friend, which who was Eliza Snow, <laughs> she promised Jane that if she accepted this calling to rele- lead the Relief Society, that she would have health and blessings from the Lord. And she was actually healed, but she still didn't accept the calling. And so to me, that Makes me think she was having some internal anxieties about it, too, and inadequacies, feeling like she maybe couldn't do it. And so she just realized that she could contribute to a greater good. You know, she kind of struggled with this. But then we hear about a conference that she organizes that she invited Brigham Young to come speak at this conference. So, Justin, tell us what this sparked.
0: I just wanted to echo, by the way, that I couldn't agree more that it seems like these callings always come at inconvenient times, right? And (laughs) and that certainly was the case for Jane Richards. But yes, at this conference, Brigham turns to Jane and and asks her kind of what she thinks about becoming a stake relief society president, which didn't exist at that time. Right. right. Um, This is like
1: a new thing. Just out of the blue.
0: Yeah. So I can't imagine what's going through her mind. You know, she's already reluctant to be the Ward Relief Society president. And they kind of acted as kind of a de facto a Stake Relief Society president. They provided training to other wards, Relief Society presidents. But this meant something different. You know, she would have a, a greater a sphere of influence, that she would have a different kind of reporting line, and she'd be responsible for these different wards. You know, she didn't have uh, as much time to think about this one. It seemed like by the end of the conference, she was called as the Stake Relief Society president.
1: And didn't he ask her to put on quarterly conferences?
0: Yeah, that's right, which was also a, a new idea at the time. Yeah. And in fact, that seemed to be her biggest surprise, right? Is, is in the, and the book does a good job of explaining this, that the Stake Relief Society itself was not you know, that crazy of an idea, but having these quarterly conferences meant a lot of work and a lot of organizing and, and meeting with different Ward Relief Society presidents.
1: I would just say maybe some of our stake Relief Society presidents who are listening, I wonder what they would think about putting on quarterly conferences. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's right.
1: That seems exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today and then, it would have. it's a tremendous amount of effort to put on a big conference like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I thought that was cool that anyway. Jane has to kind of get this new calling and put on these quarterly conferences.
0: Yeah, at a time when these settlements were spread out, the Weber Stake, where she was, you know, near Ogden, these stakes aren't just a few blocks. They're they're settlements that are far apart. They require travel, require a lot of time and attention. But as, you know, as I read the story of Jane, I couldn't help but think about, you know, what we just kind of already discussed, you know, all these different examples in my ward, in my stake, and in my mission, people that accepted callings at very inconvenient times, you know, who were dealing with heartbreak or difficult situations financially. So I really thought Jane's story can resonate with a lot of members of the church.
2: That's actually one of my favorite parts about reading saints is in addition to just history that, you know, we're familiar with a lot of the things that happened. We get to learn about These people that we may not have ever heard before, but also we get into their background and more of their situation, and we even in some situations get to hear their thoughts. Mm. And I just have really appreciated that, and it makes me feel more encouraged in my church service, just that they were people just like us, and they were able to do these incredible things with the help of the Lord, and it's just very
0: encouraging. Absolutely.
1: Speaking about callings, I got to make sure we get this in here because this kind of just blew my mind. There's a story in this chapter where a calling is extended via telegram. That's right. <laughs> a telegram is sent to Francis Lyman asking him to be the new stake president in Tooele. Yeah. And he doesn't live in Tooele. <laughs> so what's the deal with that? That just seemed really surprising to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, can you imagine receiving your call by telegram? I mean, it's like getting a call by text message, right? Yeah. And he was out, and yeah, so, so Marion, or Francis Marion Lyman, who would ultimately become a member of the Twelve. You know, I'm sure we'll see later in Saints. hope I'm not getting ahead of ourselves. No, you are. Um, We certainly will. But he went by Marion. His friends called him Marion. So Francis or Marion, I think you could call him either one. He lived in Fillmore, and yeah, he was called to serve as a stake president to Willis. So a great distance in between... And it was not totally unusual for this to happen. A lot of people were called who lived in Salt Lake to preside over a settlement in Southern Utah, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this God. was almost the opposite, bringing somebody from Central Utah up to, up to Tooele. But he was supposed to report to the stake within a few days. Um, and this was a very difficult decision for Marion because he was a really close to his family. And he was just a, such a huge figure in that community in Fillmore. But ultimately, uh, accepted the call and was there in three days.
2: And he was also dealing with his father, Amasa Lyman, who yeah. had left the church. And so he had a really hard time with that because he even said, the height of my ambition is to live the life of a Latter-day Saint and to lead my family to do likewise. And so he was really trying to come to terms with this. And I think that was something that made it hard for him to accept
0: this. Absolutely. Call. Yeah, he was really close to his father, Amasa, who served as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. I believe he even served as a short time as a counselor to Joseph Smith in the first presidency just before Joseph's martyrdom. But yeah, his father left the church, and he struggled with that. I mean, that, that really hit him hard. He was his yeah. hero. They worked together, and they lived near each other. And that story, again, really resonates with members of the church today. It really resonates with me. My own father was not a member of the church for my whole life who's actually just baptized recently. Um, Dude, that's awesome. And so I yeah. always just love this story of Mary, and I've studied this before. And and after his father passed away, he would continue to ask for his blessings to be restored and yeah. for him to be rebaptized. I'm sure that will also come up later in Saints. Um, but just a really touching story, this father and son. And I can't imagine how reluctant he was to leave his family in Fillmore and, and come up to Tooele.
1: Yeah, it's a touching scene there. They're sort of by the bedside and holding hands, and, he, and his father's telling him, I want you to be with me forever. Right. I don't know if that was a reference to temple ceiling blessings, but that's sort of how I took it, that Amaso is saying, somehow this will be all fixed at some point in the future. Really a tender story there. Yeah. So another thread in this story is Susie Young. This is a, it's a heart-wrenching kind of story here, and I think, again, something that a lot of people can relate to. Tell us a little bit about her husband, Alma, and just kind of set the stage to help us remember what's going on in her life.
0: Yeah, so Sousa is the daughter of Brigham Young, and she married a man named Alma Dunford, and he was uh, did not treat her very well. He, As the story tells, he drank heavily and occasionally abused her physically, um, perhaps emotionally.
1: There's one scene where he's like screaming from the rooftop of the house or something. I mean, it's just... It's bad. It's
0: embarrassing. I
1: mean, it had to be painful, both physically and emotionally. I mean, this is just just miserable. And
0: I can't imagine, you know, the story talks about how, you know, she tried to make it work. This kind of endured this difficult marriage for many years. And then he was ultimately called on a mission, much to her relief, it seemed like. What (laughs) is the
1: deal? (laughs) That confused the heck out of me. The first time I read that, I was like, what? He's not worthy to go on a mission. Yeah, But it tells us that he was called to reform him. I mean, that was kind of a, okay, let's get him, like, break the habit. Like, send him out on a mission, surround him by good people. Maybe that'll make him better. Was that common? Did that happen? Or was this sort of a one-off?
0: I think that that happened occasionally, yeah. That uh, a mission was a place where you go to gain experience, to grow up uh, reform behavior. The mission field was also not just made up of, you know, late teens, early twenties, young men. Uh, this was, a there were a lot of mature and older men that served as missionaries at the time. And so, you know, he could easily have been a companion of an older experienced man who had served as, you know, maybe a quorum president or a bishop. Um, right. So this was a, it was really a place you could go to gain experience, but the mission field was also a place where you went because of experience. I think that was the purpose of sending him to try to maybe reform his behavior a little bit.
2: And Susie, or Susa, as she's mm-hmm. also called, she was so relieved. Yeah. I can just imagine she said that her home was peaceful.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's really heartbreaking that she's in this situation and doesn't really know if there's a way out or a way forward. But at this time, she is seeing some opportunities that she wants to be a part of. So let's maybe talk about that a little bit.
0: There was a book, as as the chapter explains, it was called The Women of Mormondom. And at this time, there's a lot of other books being written by former members of the church. It's
1: kind of a speaking circuit that's yeah, going on. Yeah, exactly. There it's, were these. Sort it's of- very salacious. It's kind of like the social media of the day <laughs> or something. Like this is just a crazy time.
0: These were exposés, or they were meant to be these sensational accounts of the church in Utah. And they were trying to embarrass the church and portray the church in negative light. They tried to portray church leaders as oppressive and and Latter-day Saint women as oppressed and sad and slaves to their husbands. And so this new book called The Women of Mormondom, was uh, as an attempt to respond to these other books that are circulating at the time. And it was a collection of autobiographical accounts of women in Utah and tried to portray a more positive image of the church. And Souza, uh, as you mentioned, she wanted to be a part of this. There was a circuit of Utah women that were going out to promote the book and she wanted to be there and, and help give this new idea of what it was really like in Utah.
1: Let's listen to a quote here from the book that describes Brigham's advice to Sousa as she asks about participating in this opportunity.
0: If
2: you were to become the greatest woman in the world, he told her, and you should neglect your duty as wife and mother, you would wake up on the morning of the first resurrection and find you had failed in everything.
1: And then there's a second quote that goes along with that. Let's listen to that as well.
2: All that you can do after you have satisfied the righteous claims of your home and family, he reassured her, will redound to your credit and to the honor and glory of God. So when he said this to her, I don't think he was meaning to discourage her from what she wanted to do. I think he was reemphasizing the importance that she had as a woman and in her family. And I think that, as I've pondered on this, it reminds me of a lot of other things that I've heard in the church and from leadership about our role as women— And it doesn't mean that we can only strengthen our home and family and only be a wife and mother. I love how he says that once you're doing your best and satisfied the righteous claims of your home and family, he says, then everything else will redound, which I had to look up. It just means come back on. (laughs) So everything else will be to your credit and to the honor and glory of God. And so I did feel inspired. I didn't feel discouraged as I read that. Which some people might, but I I, I just felt like... Honestly,
1: I'm glad to hear you put it that way because (laughs) I worried when I read that the first time about some of our listeners and readers who would say, oh man, here's just another quote making me feel like I'm not living up to what I should be. And for me, I thought of the quote, no success can compensate for failure in the home. And like, how many parents have thought about that when they have a wayward child and thought, I blew it, you know, I guess that's it. But that's not what Brigham was saying. First of all, he's giving advice to his own daughter, not to the church in general. But also, I think there was a bit of, yes, this is very, like you're saying, Shailene, this is really, really important. That doesn't mean that it's the only thing. Mm -hmm. You can go. And I don't think the quote, no success can compensate for failure in the home is saying you don't need to have a career and a job and contribute to society and your community. Mm -hmm.
0: It's just saying, make sure you put first things first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree, and it seemed like, and I'm not sure how much the book goes into this, but you know Brigham always supported Souza and her work. She was a prolific writer. She went, to, you know, he sent her away to school to get a good education. And what I really thought was interesting is after Souza's children grew up and left the home and she became a an empty nester, she started the Relief Society magazine and right. launched this huge movement to do more genealogy and temple work and became a member of these international women's organizations. And so she really, um, she was very ambitious and she was a great example of somebody who could balance work and family.
2: And so people who have heard of her may not know this about her. This was surprising to me, but also I loved hearing this. As she was talking to her father, she said, I wish I knew the gospel was true. It says she wanted to know deep within her soul the way her parents knew it. And I just think that is encouraging, too, because when we do have questions and we do have doubts, that doesn't mean we can't still continue to fulfill our roles and our callings and seek to know the truth. And I love the way Brigham responds. He said, there's only one way that you can get the testimony of the truth. It's the way I attain my testimony and the way your mother got hers. So here we have a prophet and it's like, ooh, how does the prophet gain? How did he gain his <laughs> right, testimony? have special Yeah, access, this is going right? to be a secret. But all he says is on your knees before the Lord, go in prayer and he will hear an answer. It says that a thrill swept through Susie when mm-hmm. she heard that. And it's something that is in our control to learn the truth. I love that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I, and I love the end of that section of the chapter where there's this sort of another tender moment between a parent and child. And this time it's Brigham and Susie. And he talks about how proud and grateful I am. You know, this is Susie talking, that I have been permitted to come onto the earth to be your daughter. Just another powerful moment, you know, here at the end of Brigham's life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Before we leave him, I wanted to give one more quote here from an interview as he's coming back from southern Utah in the chapter. He takes an opportunity to meet with newspaper reporters and comment on an episode we've talked about previously, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which is just this horrific event. And Brigham wants, it feels like, to get on the public record here and give his account. And let's just listen to this little quote from the book. Brigham said... I would have gone to that camp
2: and fought the Indians and white men who took part in the perpetration of the massacre to the death rather than such a deed should have been committed, he said. And this had happened, I mean, the Mountain Meadows Massacre was 20 years previous to his interview with this reporter. And so it seems like here he is at the end of his life and he's trying to wrap things up, I think, you know, going on record with this. He's reorganizing a lot of the leadership of the church, you know, wrapping things up with his family, too, and kind of making sure that they're okay.
1: He just wants to set the record straight. And to this day, there's so many people who want to write that Brigham orchestrated everything. And I would invite our readers. We have a wonderful topic in the church history section of the Gospel Library where you can read about the Mountain Meadows Massacre But also, you'll see in the bibliography for that topic, a wonderful book by Rick Turley called Massacre at Mountain Meadows. And if you really want to know the story, it's not an easy book to read, honestly. Not that the prose is difficult. It's just a difficult topic. But read that and make your own judgment. I think the evidence is very clear. The historical evidence is Brigham did not order the attack. That's just simply not what happened.
0: Yeah, and Brigham, he really seemed to avoid doing interviews about this throughout his life, um, right. didn't want to possibly maybe not want to incriminate himself. A lot of people had already made up their minds that Brigham was involved in this, and I think he felt that no matter what he said on the record, it was not going to change anybody's minds um, that were enemies or critics of the church. But I think you're right. I think here at the end of his life, he wanted to put out some public statements about it, but also at this time, you know, John D. Lee, um, as we'll the read execution. in the book, he was yeah. convicted of his role in the massacre and, and he was executed. And federal officers actually you know, offered John D. Lee freedom and money to incriminate Brigham and he didn't. So when after he was executed and Brigham was not incriminated, there was like a, a national kind of furor. You know, there was a lot of backlash against the church and it made things difficult for missionaries out in the field. So I think that this was also a chance for Brigham to try to calm the waters a little bit. Even if people think that maybe he, you know, this quote that that we just heard, some people might think that was embellished or or just trying to portray him in a good light. I think we learn from the records, from the historical records that he did not order the massacre, but in fact tried to stop it.
1: Okay, so one final thing we wanna make sure we talk about in this episode, and this is a big change, (laughs) down in St. George, Wilford Woodruff has a dream. Tell us about that dream and what, what its implications are for the church then and now.
0: Yeah, so Wilford Woodruff's down in St. George, and he calls them night visions, which I thought was kind of interesting, which is uh, what they say in the Old Testament. You know, some Old Testament writers call a dream. So he has this dream, and the signers of the Declaration of Independence of the United States, they uh, appear in this dream to Wilford and ask for their temple work to be done it's kind of a, such an interesting story in church history. I think a lot of us have heard that before. But what I thought was really interesting, you know, was that he went into his library and then found the names of all these prominent men and women who had made these great contributions artists, to the world. Authors, artists,
1: prison reformers. Exactly. Yeah. All
0: these different kinds of social reformers and national heroes in different countries and put together this list for their work to be done in the temple, which is kind of interesting because some of these men had their work done. In, uh, had their baptisms performed, but the Saint George Temple had just opened, and this is the first time that endowments for the dead could be performed. And so, this is a whole new era of temple work.
1: It really does. It starts there and continues to this day. I mean, this is what family search is all about, and we do temple research now. Today, we don't research the names of famous people. In fact, that's like strictly prohibited. Mm-hmm. It's you're supposed to do it for your family members, or you can a name that's been professionally researched at the temple. But it's amazing that this starts the work of doing temple endowments and all of the ordinances of the temple for those that have passed on. And it really continues on that turning of the key and the hearts of the children turning to their fathers that started back in Kirtland. It's an amazing thing that this is happening again in St. George.
0: And there was something I wanted to add was also this dream that Wilford Woodruff had didn't seem to necessarily just come out of the blue. Just months earlier, in 1876, there was the centennial celebration of the Declaration of Independence back in 1776. So there were these centennial celebrations happening all over the country, including Utah. And Wilford Woodruff's journal, in the months throughout 1876 and in 1877, he mentions the signers of the Declaration and the founding fathers of the country And so these things are on his mind, you know, and it's kind of interesting to kind of put him in that historical context and and see that he was a part of this environment of celebrating the founders. This is also an era at the end of Reconstruction, when the country's trying to come back together after Civil War. And there's this sort of emphasis on American nationalism and and playing up the Founding Fathers, which was an era when we were all together, you know, and and undivided. So it's kind of interesting to, to see kind of that background of these night visions he was having.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. I hadn't even thought of that before. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you listeners for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for another episode of the Saints Podcast. As always, you can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. We'd love to hear your feedback. Toss us a rating um, on whatever platform you're listening to us. And uh, thank you again for listening. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen back. We'll see you next time.